0: We are on our fifth covenant from the Old Testament this week. It comes through the words of the prophet Jeremiah from the 31st chapter. I invite you to find that uh, in your Bible or on your device or maybe the Bible you brought with you. We'll be reading Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Listen for the word of the Lord. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke, even though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will place my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer shall they teach anyone or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the very least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I brought a a document with me today that's quite important to to my ministry and uh, to who we are as a a staff here at First United Methodist Church. Shortly after arriving here in 2019, uh, we decided that we wanted to to do something, to really galvanize ourselves and, and think about the next several months, several years of, of ministry together. And so Jillian, uh, as wise as she always is, she said, I know, let's write a covenant. So we began thinking about covenant and the words, and for six to seven weeks, uh, the program staff uh, developed a covenant together. And the the main headings, I'm not going to read you all of the, the pieces of it, although I'd love for you to look at it at some time. You might want to adopt a covenant for your family or you might want to adopt a covenant uh, in your own workplace uh, or with the other uh, spheres of influence. But it talks about how the, the clergy will relate to the staff and how the, the staff will relate and treat one another and how the, the staff and the ministry teams will will treat the pastors and how we will resolve our conflicts and our differences and how the entire staff... Clergy and all will be in ministry with the congregation and with the community. And there's bullet points under all of that, most of which are founded on trust and respect and and boundaries. We have a line in here that says, you know, we're not going to be texting and calling each other on one Sabbath. And so we've identified Sabbath days and we try to protect that so that we all may keep it holy. And this document has been a tremendous asset to who we are. We always are reminding ourselves, we're in covenant, we're in covenant, we're in covenant with one another. Now, I didn't make them prick their finger and smear blood on it. We said that about covenants. Covenant means cut. One cuts a covenant, but we have all signed it, and we all have a copy of it. We keep it with us to remind us about our guardrails, to remind us the direction we're going, to remind us how we're going to think and, and treat and relate to one another. But, but the contents of this, this document are one thing, and we've signed it, and, and I actually have cut one of the corners because, you know, you cut a covenant, so there's that. But this document needs to become part of who we are, of our everyday identity. And the only way that it can become part of our everyday identity is if we live it out and give it to God and say, God, we we need a change of heart every single day. And so I think about this new covenant that comes from God through the prophet Jeremiah. This, This was Jeremiah's finest moment, by the way, I don't know that he realized it would take several hundred years for it to be embodied and and actualized in the person of, of Jesus Christ, but here we are with the covenant from Jeremiah, the new covenant. Since we started this series four weeks ago, what we've seen is the evolution of the human and the divine relationship, and with each covenant, God is drawing a little bit closer to people. God is revealing something about himself every time there's a covenant. Every time there's a a defining moment in the story of God's people and, and God, there's a covenant. It's cut. There's no going back when you cut life to enact or to ratify a covenant. So this covenant today, it's a proximity covenant. Because if we ever expect the world to change for the better and to be made whole, it has to begin with an inward turn of God's people. It has to begin with a, a change of, of heart, if you will. So along the way, as God has drawn closer and closer and closer to the lives, the messiness, the yuckiness, the stickiness of, of human life, God has always marked that with an outward sign. There's, there's been a rainbow. There's been an outward marking of circumcision with with the covenant with Abraham. There's been the tablets of law with Moses. There's been a dynasty and would be a temple with with David. But now it's so different. This covenant, this new covenant founded on hope and redemption and forgiveness, is one that will require the heart of the people to be cut, to be pierced to be hurt and wounded in some way. Circumcision of the heart is what we're talking about now. God will cut to the heart of the matter because the hearts of the people matter to God. God will put God's law in the hearts of people and God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Not, I might be their God and they might be my people. This is how this relationship will work. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer, no longer will the law remain an an external document like our staff covenant. No longer would the hardened stone breakable Ten Commandments be that which defined the relationship with God and people because now the, the law of God would be placed in the broken, tender hearts of people where it cannot be broken anymore. God's ways cannot be relegated to stone tablets in the ark of a temple, in the temple of, of the people in a city that was established by, by David. All of that was gone at this point. That Jeremiah was was prophesying. Think about it. The temple had been completely razed. The Davidic covenant cut off. No more. King Zedekiah was was whisked away in chains. And the idea is, amid all of this rubble and chaos and madness, there's no temple. And if there's no temple, there's no God. And if there's no God, there's no covenant. And if there's no covenant, there's there's no fidelity. And people were left asking, have we been abandoned by God? I get that. I get that. Anyone ever felt abandoned by God? Well, the good news amid all of this is that sometimes God's name is spelled H-O-P-E, hope. We always have hope. It reminds me of a story I ran across this week. It's a story about Dick and Rick Hoyt they may not be household names to you all, but their legacy should be quite familiar. Because beginning in 1980, Dick Hoyt and his son Rick Hoyt completed 32 Boston Marathons together, but not in the conventional way that we might understand. Because you see, Rick was a quadriplegic with cerebral palsy after a umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck at an early age. And so, speaking with the Today Show in 2013, the father, Dick, said, so many people said, forget Rick, put him away, put him in an institution, he'll be a a vegetable the rest of his life. And then he said, well, today he's 51 years old and we haven't figured out what kind of vegetable he is, but that vegetable has been turned into a bronze statue. Against so many odds, Team Hoyt ran 32 Boston marathons, they camped, they rafted, they skied, they swam. Rick went to public school, he graduated from Boston University, and and over time they completed 1,100 races together, including 257 triathlons. Did you read that this week? The father was often quoted as saying, we run for people who think they can't run. We run for people who think they can't run. There's nothing particularly Christian about Team Hoyt and their interviews, but their mission is entirely New Covenant stuff because it says two things. One, every single human life is precious to God Almighty, and every single human life has purpose. And second, just a little bit of hope can inspire an entire world. So if we know anything about the covenants, if we've learned anything about the nature of God, we serve a God who can take rainbows from destructive waters. We serve a God who birthed a nation from a very improbable couple who delivered slaves from Egyptian tyranny, who overthrew all the enemies of Israel the one who would build something from the rubble and establish a new covenant that had nothing to do with bricks and mortar, but everything to do with the tender chambers of, of one's heart. And the same God will bring life from the very jaws and grasp of death itself. And God says, I will be your God and you will build my people. This covenant is different Because we feel this covenant. It reminds me of of Paul's words that came so much later, that neither death nor life nor angels nor powers of this world nor principalities nor things present nor things yet to come, nothing can separate God's people from the love of God. So we ask about this law of Torah. These these Ten Commandments were, were then written down in 613 other ways. You have the Ten Commandments. We talked about it two weeks ago. And then 613 other laws said, this is how it'll happen. This is what it'll mean. So in your reading tonight, your devotional time, I want you to go back and look and read chapters 17, 18, and 19 of, Le- of Leviticus. You in? Everybody in? Okay, good. Yeah. In the Holiness Code, Torah becomes part of, of the ethos of the people because it envisions a community where God's people care for the most vulnerable, and that takes precedence over any profit margin. From Leviticus 19, we also read about a society where courts treat every human being the same. Torah requires that all debts are forgiven so that no one falls into systemic poverty. Torah even has a provision in it for strangers and immigrants to whom radical hospitality is supposed to be extended. Torah even demands that all land periodically be returned to the original owner so that no one person can accumulate so much property, and that lead to homelessness. Torah always has in mind a selfless, not a selfish kind of love. And it says, we will run for those who think they cannot run. Granted, Torah also requires that the clergy inspect all sorts of skin irritations, boils, and other open wounds, so Lucas is to my left if you need him, right? <laughs> Thanks, buddy. The point is that Jeremiah announces that Torah, in the hearts of people, will break the generational cycles of sin and violence which so easily separated God from Israel. Israel from God. And so what this does is it allows us to see and to hear people as God does. And for Jeremiah, seeing and hearing like God and, and knowing God means taking up the causes of the poor and the needy and the infirm and the widows and the orphans and all who are oppressed by all sorts of systems in our society. These become the shared values in the new covenant can you know where it all comes to fruition and how? It'll take about 600 years, but it all comes to a point around a table. It's called the Last Supper where Jesus picked up from his forefathers and from the prophet Jeremiah this language and he said to his disciples, a new commandment, a new covenant I give to you that you love one another. By this, the whole world will know that you are God's people, that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's a matter of the heart. Lent affords us that this season. It it affords us the opportunity to do some cardio, to get out the spiritual uh, stethoscopes and to make some life changes to ensure there's a healthy place in the chambers of our heart for this new covenant to reside. So I ask you, what changes do you need to make in, in your heart in order for God to place the new covenant in your heart? Each week I walk around the hallways of, of our church each and every day, really. Sometimes I have a hard hat on and, and other times I just, I just need to get out and breathe a little bit. And so I walk through our hallways and something I've learned over the past six months is that this whole process of, of renovation, the impact renovation is a wonderful metaphor for our lives during Lent. I don't think it's happening coincidentally that all these renovations are going on during uh, this time of pandemic, this time of Lent, this time of, of soul searching and introspection, because what I've learned from these, these renovations is that for reconstruction or for renovations to happen, there has to be deconstruction. And so for about two and a half or, th- or three months, every single day, the pneumatic chisels were above us and below us and in offices across from us and And we started taking tabs on who could get the closest to how many times the man would hit the sledgehammer up against the wall. And sometimes you just go crazy, counting. But it's the sounds of progress. It's the sounds of stepping into the future. And what I've learned each and every time I've heard things chiseled and banged and it was loud and it was messy and things were hauled off and and put into a container. And then they were hauled off somewhere else. I've I've come to see that as a metaphor for, for our human life. Personally, as a family, as a church... Sometimes we need to do some deconstruction and haul off the old material so God can do something new, some renovating or some reconstruction. We need to chisel away at the old mortar of bitterness and anger and jealousy and envy and and pride because our hearts and our souls and our minds and our relationships need renovating. And that might be a very loud and messy process like it has been on campus, But before God can do something new and reconstruct something in us and through us for the world, there there has to be a process of deconstruction. What changes are you making in your life to make room for God this day and the new covenant? Finally, being this deep in Lent, I'm very mindful, I hope you are, that the shadow of the cross is becoming more prominently fixed as we take these steps but we need not continue walking forward toward Holy Week and, pa- and the Passion of Christ and, and Easter morning without first pausing to check our vitals and to make some changes. And to remember that it was God who, who really changed everything by deciding to come down and to become one of us. So I want to encourage us as we begin making our way forward to this meal, this table where the covenant was ratified in and through Jesus Christ, that we don't take another step forward toward Easter if we're not willing to allow something in our lives to be crucified so that Christ can raise it back up. What changes do you need to make in your heart to make room for the new covenant? Don't take another step forward toward Easter if we're not also ready to help resurrect the dead places of our community. So I invite you to do something right now. We're going to come forward in just a moment after hearing the great thanksgiving and the words of institution and the story of who we are. And I'm going to invite you to come down as you always do with your your palms presented this way because we cannot cling so tightly to the past or try to control the future so much. If we do, we'll never experience the grace of what it means to be vulnerable and available to God. So with each step you make as you come forward today, I invite you to say, Lord, create in me a clean heart today and renew a right spirit within me. Amen.